Hello, welcome back to a Dad and Sons podcast. Once again, we are recording on a Thursday morning. For for the record, this is March 5th. Just in case something happens that completely outdates all of the discussions you were about to hear, because that is exactly what happened last week when 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 GDC actually did get indefinitely delayed after we were thinking that might happen. I guess we shouldn't think about worse things happening. True. Uh, George, I unfortunately, ha I have to inform you that due to living in March 6th and in the future, the time between now and when you reach me, the coronavirus has killed us all. It doesn't yet transfer through wires, though. So, like, That's the, the... what it wants you to believe. <laughs> The air coming out of your mouth into your microphone that comes out of my my headphones into my ears will will hopefully be scrubbed clean of of coronavirus every, and you know all the other filth. Every single person listening to this is uh, now infected. So Matt is not here with us this week. Uh, no, week, I almost said weekend. Matt is on a secret. Top secret mission. Ugh, if only. Doing some some Work. filming for some some biggie wiggies. They have him traveling to an event this week, so yeah. he's actually the one who who might be most at risk of the three of us, and he's also the one who's not here. So yeah, he's, so he's okay. He's living at large in like big hotel rooms and stuff, and living that baller life. Hopefully, all of all of the terrible things that we predict will not come true this week on the Dad and Sons podcast. Well, before that, at least we have the comfort of uh, a Twitter roundhouse of like thousands of responses. Once again, to yep. warm our lungs that are now slowly dying. So the Final Fantasy remake is on the cusp of a big release. We got a demo this uh, this week. They just revealed some new media and uh, details for the Resident Evil 3 remake. Our like One of our favorite games of last year was the Resident Evil 2 remake. So in order to fill the time with Matt gone, I decided to ask Twitter for the podcast... In lieu of the Resident Evil and Final Fantasy remakes going on these days, what is an old bad game that could get turned into a new good game if it got an overproduced jillion dollar remake? See, you changed this because I initially wrote this question and you changed from bad game to good game. And now I don't really want to see that. I want to see a bad game just have like a bajillion dollars thrown at it to then be like bad in HD. <laughs> that does change things. Fuck. <laughs> but it's interesting people's responses. I think a lot of people also didn't read the question because some people are like, Chrono Trigger, Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> it's like, whoa, those are some spicy hot takes. So I actually copy pasted the text in into a, a, a processor and did some math and crunched some numbers. And the computer says that the most frequent response was Drakengard. Wow. Yeah, out of 200-something responses, four people picked Drakengard, which technically makes it a majority winner. Is that because of Nier? Like, uh -huh. people, are, people are lying, right, if they said they played that before Nier came out. Yeah, there were some people who, who would say in their responses, Drakengard, but then in parentheses, like, because... Yeah, because Nier. I have never played it, really. It looks really bad, but I would like a remake of it because of Nier. Actually, Nier, like, one, or just Nier, 
Gestalt or whatever it's called. That would be a pretty good remake. Uh, so the people who did respond with Nier would oftentimes in parentheses put like, but Drakengard if not, and then with the caveat that like Nier actually kind of holds up, like there are some people in the replies talking about that, like whether or not Nier actually is, is old enough to look like it needs a remake. Mm. Drakengard on the other hand, no one questions that one, That's but there true. is some, some questioning over whether or not Nier is, is also, and then yeah, people calling out the Chrono Trigger answer. <laughs> I don't think age factors into this. You could have there are there are a couple of good ones I saw like um, Lee Devrek. He said Alpha Protocol. That 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 is a great example. So second place is tied between Alpha Protocol, Persona One, and Metal Gear One. And I'm not going to clarify the MSX or NES Metal Gear one. But Metal Gear got a remake. It's called Metal Gear Solid, and then that itself got a remake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then and then that remake is somewhere on the list too. Someone did suggest Twin Snakes, <laughs> and then they all had HD remakes anyway. <laughs> oh, up scale remasters. Sorry. So yeah, yeah. The second place is a tie between Alpha Protocol, Metal Gear, and Persona. Did you did you play Persona One? No, I think I started with Innocent Sin, which was really hard as well. Persona One looks and plays not a whole lot like the others. It's like a first person dungeon crawl. It, it almost looks more like a Ultima game than a than a third person JRPG with pretty anime people. <laughs> yeah there are some of the older persona games they're not quite the uh the atlas personas of now the three four and five i think persona one no no it was persona two that had hitler as the boss i was wondering how they would tackle that isn't two in innocent sin or is that the psp game yeah persona two innocent that like that's the, the subtitle anyway innocent sin can you imagine if that was hitler like they were there was subtext that was that the innocent sin in all of us was Adolf Hitler. I'm trying not to think about that too hard. <laughs> um, what other responses did we get, George? What other games have stuck out to you? Eternal Darkness is the next one down the list. That's in terms not a of bad frequency. game. I wonder how well it's aged, though, because I, I have tried to go back to it in recent years and time didn't treat it well. I think this mostly goes back to the conversation we had like two weeks ago where the creators of said games, can we separate the art from the artiste? And uh, what's his name? The guy who owns Silicon? Dennis Dick. Dennis, Dennis Dydeck or whatever Dennis his name is. <laughs> Dennis Dick. Yeah, uh... Not exactly the greatest of guys. Made too human. Oh, <laughs> snap, though. You know how um there was that rumor that, that uh, PT slash Silent Hill was going to have players sign up to get text message alert spooks and, wow. and spooky spam mail? Why would you do that to yourself? Because if you're making an Eternal Darkness remake, you could... Oh, no. I have a, I have a spooky phone call. In the <laughs> oh, my God. The timing podcast. of that was terrible. If you that did a remake... Me. There is all sorts of fourth wall breaking bullshit you could actually do nowadays that would be way more intense than in 2001 if you were to remake Eternal Darkness. Like, I want I want to see the game accidentally bring up your console's OS screen. I want to see some Undertale bullshit. I want to see Eternal Darkness remake delete itself if I accidentally get too scared by the zombos. Yeah, but th that kind of thing is like kind of like bringing up the OS. Nobody knows what the OS of a console looks like. Like, the dashboard would be great. Like, 
oh, oh wow, I must have pressed the wrong button, and all of a sudden, like, yeah, 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 starts flickering back and forth. That would, be yeah, like, 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 oopsie, I accidentally like closed the game gimmicks. Like, oh, it'd be great if you could have like permission from Netflix. Like, it it closes <laughs> itself and it it brings up a fake version of the the Netflix, and then literally just like jump scare out at you from after the net you're like why the fuck oh my god <laughs> i remember when i played eternal darkness at, back in the day i did get got by a gimmick screen that pretended that i had just finished the demo of eternal darkness <laughs> like after i was three hours in the screen went to black and it said thanks for playing the demo and i was like wait a second did blockbuster sell me the wrong disc so now i'm wondering if nowadays the modern version of that could be like you'd know about everything anyway within 10 minutes of looking on twitter so uh, uh th three hours into eternal darkness you beat a boss screen fades to black you go back to the main menu and it says thank you for purchasing the 45 dollars dlc pack <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your order of 1000 loot boxes <laughs> you are now subscribed to eternal darkness facts <laughs> you are now subscribed to ea origin <laughs> next one down the list from eternal darkness is morrowind Two two people did did both agree on Morrowind and how is that next on the list if two people? Because it's less interesting than the next one on the list that has two people. Before we get to that one though, Morrowind. Oh, I'm I'm the guy on the podcast who talks about Morrowind, right? But we all know Morrowind is kind of good, so it doesn't count. Also, reinstalling Morrowind on a hype new gaming computer every time you buy one kind of counts as remaking Morrowind anyway. Isn't like Skyrim a remake of Morrowind anyway? And Oblivion was a remake of Morrowind before that. No, they're not. Th those are <laughs> those are more sequels than like Twin Snakes is a remake to Metal Gear Solid and is Metal Gear Solid a remake to Metal Gear? Like Morrowind has has these very interesting colonial themes that the other Elder Scrolls games didn't get into. Like you see you see different races and different architectures all living in the same city having fights with one another. Somebody, oh, um, shout shout out Mapes bracket Spear Mix bracket close bracket at JM Bosba. How do people come up with the, <laughs> these Twitter handles? I swear to God, uh, has literally, uh, yeah, he put God Hand, but then he corrected himself and said, "Oh wait, I missed that. It had to be bad." And he, I, I'm fully well with him. That game is like the best bad good game in the world, and it deserves a remake. I never thought it was a bad game in no, the first place it's it's janky and strange and when you go back and look at the reviews of it of those god hand reviews the only bad one was really just that ign review that like i i think i think greg Casavin gave it like an eight most people i think greg, gave it a... greg's got great taste <laughs> greg's favorite game is final fantasy tactics the man the man knows so my favorite answer to this question goes to users of Lily Pilgrim and Herder, who responded with Jurassic Park Trespasser. Oh no. <laughs> no! And you know why, though? You know why? Because it's so bad. It's it's a bad game because they had you hold down mouse buttons and hold down keys and twist your arms in all sorts of weird ways to control a fully interactive arm that waves in front of your character as a physics object, which would translate absolutely perfectly as a VR. I know. Uh huh. Oh, uh huh. God. Oh, Jesus uh -huh. Christ. 
You could tie it in with one of the many thousands of Jurassic World sequels now. Seeing dinosaurs in a VR perspective, getting eaten by dinosaurs from a VR perspective, you have horror. Oh my god, that's terrifying. Yeah, you'd have some like weird, you, you could appeal to the weird furry vor fetishists um um and and hardcore vr gamers nostalgic 90 retro gamers who who want to relive the glory of playing playing jurassic park trespasser as a kid but but in in the cyber year 2020s there's there's something for everyone there's comedy there's sadness there's horror there's action and romance even because you can just like check out your character's boobs whenever you're bored <laughs> and the tattoo she has on her chest that is her health system that which was... translates perfectly to vr <laughs> <laughs> wait literally i'm i'm putting all the pieces together jurassic park trespasser was the half-life alex prototype the three hearts down on your gloves the physics bending of your arms Manipulation of the world, being chased by monsters that, you know, eat your head. In those those two years, 98 and 99, stuff was coming out that was just 20 years ahead of time and they didn't even know it at the time. You had, uh, like, like the Dreamcast tried to do online subscription-based gaming and, and that Jurassic... Was, that was fairly successful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put... Fantasy Star Online in the same brackets as Jurassic Park Trespasser. I'd still put put Dreamcast in the same basket of things that were dreaming big way too early. Oh, that's harsh. Poor Dreamcast. Okay, okay, in Japan maybe, but how many houses do you think you could walk into that have have a Dreamcast in a in a box in a closet? I mean, they're, they they did not sell as well as no they the, sold the like four million which is nothing that's nothing yeah thanks for participating in the responses but george what is your personal what is our own bad game that <sighs> could be great an old bad video game i would like to see get a jillion dollar remake is seal team from 1993 released for ms dos um, I tried playing this game a little bit in DOSBox. I heard about it from an old Kotaku article. I would not have found out about it any other way, and what I played was cumbersome and unwieldy, but had a really, really cool idea of crossing over tactical strategy games with shooter games in a way that made it very scary to play. Like, there was one-shot kill rules, and you never saw the bad guys hiding in the bushes sniping at you, so you had to be very, very deliberate and careful with every single step you took. And that's something that I just would like to see more war games do, is make war scary. I don't know, like, there, uh, there's definitely, in the past decade, I can't remember any real bad games I've played because time is precious and I'm not going to purposely go out of my way and play a bad game. But there's lots of like old janky Nintendo 64 games that I would like to play again. But there is a GameCube, there was a GameCube fighting game <laughs> that at the time when I was a child, I didn't realize was bad because obviously <laughs> kids can't judge. Oh, weren't those such great years, though, before yeah, you I know, knew? Right? It, it, the literal embodiment of ignorance is bliss is a kid who can only have one game a year at Christmas or his birthday. Or oh, whatever. I, I want to go back. I want to go back. Ignorance is bliss. But the game I played a lot on the GameCube, and you probably have never heard of this game, George, 
was Godzilla destroy all monsters melee. Actually, I do think I remember some positive buzz about that game. No, it reviewed poorly. I just Googled it and found out some information about it I never <laughs> knew. It was it was developed by WayForward. Wow. Which is insane. And also, the person who composed the music for it was Jake Kaufman, the Shovel Knight composer. Uh you see, we all got to start somewhere, kids. No, no, it was directed by Matt Boson, the guy who made Shantae. I did not know any of this. All I knew was an amazing Godzilla Destroy All Monsters game for the GameCube. It was so good. It was so bad, but so good. Game Informer gave it a 4.5 out of 10. Oof. Game Spy. Gave it a one. Oh, wait, no, I was looking at the Game Boy Advance versions. And that's, oh, right, that's... yeah, the, the GameCube the GameCube version reviewed average. Games yeah, score, these 6. scores... 6.9. They're, they're okay. 8, yeah, 8.4 from IGN probably means it's an okay game. It, it's, it's a, it looks like it was a middling title, but for me it was like, this is the game. <laughs> this is the best. <laughs> I would love to have that remade. That would be sick. Like the budget of a Godzilla film. Sure. Yeah. I I'd be down. Remember, um, there was a giant fighting ah, kaiju yours. monster game for for PS2 that was really unique and weird that that you might not say was a fighting game. Uh, it's not Destroy <laughs> All Monsters. Was it like War of the Monsters? Yeah, War of the Monsters was was an interesting PS2 game. Did you did you play that one? No, I don't. I don't think so. It doesn't ring a bell. Anything monsters? I'm I'm just wondering if the style is a little little similar or different from from this Godzilla game. You had a third person behind the back camera and very rubber bandy power ups that would have oh, yeah. multiplayer matches last it's, like it's, 30, 40 minutes. It's quite similar, but yeah, it's definitely a bit more open world three D space. Whereas Godzilla Destroyer Monsters. The characters were so big that you could literally just hit each other immediately. You were like picking up skyscrapers to twat each other in the face with. Twat each other? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this <laughs> good, looks, good word this choice. Looks, this looks fairly similar. There there hasn't been much that's uh like like looked like that with a big big jillion dollar budget. I wonder I mean, it's funny you say that, because it might be in the news, but the the platinum yeah just just put out that teaser that might be our jillion dollar monster fighting game well yeah it's our super sentai cross mech cross ultraman cross giant godzilla <laughs> monsters kaiju game because you know with like like physics and scripted events these days you could get real fancy with destruction sequences what and it's got the best like it's got the best current name in the world for a video game project gg <laughs> project good Godzilla. <laughs> That's what that stands for. I am quite excited about that because if you imagine Kamiya, obviously Kamiya is a pretty talented game designer. Then now he's making like the game he's always wanted to make. Literally, his obsession is with like Super Sentai. And obviously, he made Beautiful Joe in the past, but now he gets to combine that with like mechs and dinosaurs and monsters. It's, it's pretty crazy. It's going to be pretty good, I think. So now that we've got all of that wrapped up, I guess we can we can start talking about stuff we've played now that's actually out and not imaginary and 
I played games. Really exists. I, I tried. I, I, I made a conscious effort to play like multiple games this past week, and I'm very proud of myself. But inevitably, we're going to now spend 50 minutes talking about a new game that's an old game that is a remake. The Jillion Dollar remake of, of the Final Fantasy VII demo that just came out this week. Drop it like it's hot. We got to coordinate again and play something together that we can both talk about. Yay! All three of us played it, and then Matt decided to go on a secret mission to Shinra's headquarters and not to that. Which is a shame, because when I was um, posting my, my gifts of, uh, <laughs> of luring the AI around corners, it was making him a little upset. He, 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 made, <laughs> he made a few angry gamer comments at me for that one. <laughs> Stop making my game look bad. <laughs> Okay, okay, so for those who don't know, the Final Fantasy VII demo is out, the combat system is real-time hack-and-slash, and the way I played the game was absolutely cheesing it and having me kite enemies around corners where I just would wait around the corner and slash at them as they came down. And I actually liked that and appreciated it. But I mean, if I that's how it, you want to play, you play. That is, and, and I was happy to see that my tricks worked. But when I posted this image in our Discord, Matt reacted with like, George, why would you do that to, do that to this beautiful <laughs> demo? Which meant that I kind of, sort of, very briefly, before we get into it, wanted to have a conversation about jank. Because that's, that's I guess, something that might look like jank to one person that might not to the other person. That didn't look like jank to me. Not to me, right? But, no. but for, for some reason, it was, it was upsetting Matt. And, and I can see how once the camera pans away from these beautiful, gorgeous characters who, who uh, look like you're playing a real-time Advent children and into gameplay where you see Cloud swing a giant sword that doesn't look like it should be light enough to go that fast to, to hit enemies that He's a very strong man. sparks a, a way, way too many sparks come flying out for a sword hitting a human. I don't know what's <laughs> making those sparks. They're gorgeous, but they got to come from somewhere. The frame, it's the metal armor. The frame kind of, kind of chops a bit like in Dead Rising or, or Zelda when, when your sword connects with them. Their AI is also very clearly not taking into account things like their, their self-preservation. Once, once those moves get on the screen, it doesn't look as convincing anymore. But but I I I like that. I I want to make the bold statement that maybe a little bit of jank, a little bit of things looking weird is is actually a good thing. See, I absolutely agree, but I disagree with the way you're disseminating what it is. It is not jank, I don't think. I think it's absolutely purposeful design. Because you think about what this game is, this game is an RPG being turned into real-time combat with little flavors on top of RPG turn-based systems, which we'll talk about the combat system in a minute, but is really smart and really cool. But how do you change how enemies behave in RPGs, which is to take their, you know, take their turn after the player has? And also, this game is not a real-time action combat game like Devil May Cry or Bayonetta, even though at times it looks like it is because it's flashy and looks awesome and feels good. It does like the ultimate best rule of all the video games is make the player look really cool because that is like one of the most important things. And that's what it does. But 
it doesn't it doesn't act like a, 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 an action combat game. So how do you make enemies that kind of are like RPG enemies, but also have to respond to you? Well, they've got to kind of be like cannon fodder. You're in the first mission of the game. They're gonna be like mobs. If if you think about the old game, they had like 30 HP and you could take them out immediately, right? So you have to just equate that into kind of stupid looking they have no self-preservation enemies anyway. Yeah, they they have guns, but don't use them. Yeah, so I don't think it's jank. I think it's a case of, well, this is the first level enemies. They're going to be dumb. They're going to be stupid. And because it looks so realistic at times, yeah, it kind of doesn't work, but it still feels so good. <laughs> like, that's uh, that's actually one of the things I, I wanted to talk about was how the graphical jump kind of adds a lot of ludonarrative dissonance that might not have been there before. It does look a lot weirder seeing Cloud bring a sword to a gunfight in 4K with realistically proportioned human beings that have realistic-looking guns Instead of Lego people with uh, with very yeah. numbers driven visuals, I agree. But then we we have the picture of Final Fantasy VII that we've had in our mind for like the past fifteen years has been the one that has come almost from Advent Children, right? So we're already kind of used to it in a Final Fantasy VII context, I think. But like the one that's funny to me is like when you like cut them up and the the bodies disappear, they fade into like the almost Marvel like particle dust, and it's like oh. Cloud just Thanos snapped that motherfucker out of existence with his buster sword. This is pretty cool. So, George. Yeah. Was I or was I not correct about the combat? When You're I right. told you after the TGS demo. You're right. It reminded me of Dragon Age. Like, that was, <laughs> that was like one of the first thoughts that popped in my head. I wish you could tell them to stay put, like on a spot. But until I then, imagine it's like there's going to be something. And play in. Yeah, I imagine there's going to be something where you're able to do that but i like that they've thought of everything in regards to and which can be a bad thing because it can be overloading about oh no that you can do this and this and this and this and obviously you want to talk about classic mode a little bit but the the fact that you don't have to even though you can if you want to you can switch characters but you don't have to you can like fight the scorpion boss with cloud but then you can always like hold the thing with barrett and do the thunder, and you don't have to switch to Barrett. You can just keep playing as Cloud. And also, if you don't even want to access the menus, they've made it so you press L1, and then any of the face buttons, and that is mapped to what Cloud's abilities are, so you don't even have to pause the game to do his abilities, which is super smart, because then if you do want to treat it like it's an action combat game, you kind of can. But I want to treat it like a like an RPG where I can micromanage every millisecond. Well, you also can for the extent of a, a real-time third-person combat thing. Even if you take the action out, you know, your characters are going to move about. They're not going to stand still. Yeah, they have an AI that kicks in once, once any orders that you give them wear off. And it's only like a two-second or something window that you have to 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 nab them again but that was that was like my play style through the demo micromanaging every millisecond waiting around corners when i could and i i had a pretty good time throughout it even with this uh that scorpion boss was it just me or was that actually a little little bit of a challenge yeah it was a challenge and i've played that boss twice and it was definitely harder 
in this demo than it was at TGS. I was wondering about that because it seemed so early in the game that it seemed like it was suspiciously big of a difficulty jump. I think it's a case of the new system. Everybody's not that familiar with it. Understanding not only that you're switching your characters so that, you know, the... The game tells you straight up the Scorpion is weak to Thunder. Well, Barrett only has Thunder, so how do you plan it? Well, you can build up the ATB with Cloud, and you can do some damage with Cloud, but really you need to be building up the ATB with Barrett so then he can access Thunder and he can do Thunder, but you want him to be targeting the weak points, and you can like switch between the different weak points of the Spider, uh, the Scorpion, like the middle point, the legs, the head. So you're like... You're, you're learning progressively that this is a game that's going to require you to not only like micromanage, but macromanage like things on top of things. Like there are, there are multiple RPG. meters. Yeah, but it's like an RPG, right? It's a lot of stacking, a lot of like thinking the, the turn order in a, in a faster moment than you would prior. And I actually really like that. And I like the fact that it was a challenge because I'm like, okay, this is something I can get good at. Like there, there are things that you can do in this game that you can't do in other RPGs. Sometimes you just get bullshitted in RPGs because the boss does a random attack, right? That wipes out your whole fucking party and there's nothing you can do about it. Whereas in this, it's like there's a dexterity element to it now where you can save your own ass by being good at the game, which is great. And if you don't want that, you can play classic mode and it's a little easier and you can, you can keep doing your thing. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the flip side to feeling unable to have full control over micromanaging every millisecond like in a turn-based system or a totally pause-and-play CRPG system like Dragon Age is that you actually have to worry about Barrett's positioning and tactics in this one versus the original where Barrett has the same attack button as everyone else. You, you keep Barrett at a distance, cloud up close, try to wrangle their AIs to make sure neither of them wander into a bad zone and and watch as this slow trickle of damage turns into a big trickle of spectacular special moves and and, and death animations that are, are ridiculous to watch. And yeah, it's as, as the sum of its parts, it's a really, really gratifying system that is... Yeah is hilarious to watch play out and also feels crunchy and, and gritty in your hands and keeps also you, keeps your mind going about yeah, what's going to happen in the future soon. I think that's the thing. It gives you so many things that different genres of games can give you in one go, right? It, it reminds me of Vanquish, weirdly enough. Huh. It combines like... Intrigued it combines this... this dexterity action that gives you the crunchiness of like swinging this giant buster sword around and like you hiding behind corners luring like a whole bunch of enemies to a thing and then when you watch the video you literally like cleave through those guys and it feels great because you're like you're taking out like three dudes in one go with a giant sword and it looks beautiful and it's, it gives that weight to the combat which is like what well, vanquish is like when you're moving about and you're doing all these cool things but there's this slowdown effect where all of a sudden you slow down and you have this... Uh, yeah, time is... This moment... Is zigzaggy in both those games. Yeah, and it's like the combination of like, what is the antithesis to action? Well, it's to slow down and plan meticulously. And it doesn't feel out of balance from what is going on. Because one, it's not completely slow to a crawl and you can still take damage and then it knocks you out of the, the pause in Final Fantasy VII. 
but it gives you this moment where you quickly think like, okay, ATB's at this, this guy takes this much damage, he's almost staggered, I can I can disseminate what is happening and be like, okay, well, if I do fire here and then I switch to Barret and Barret does thunder, and you're, you get a little excited about like that almost chest-like planning five moves ahead, but then it's like you, you plan to do that, but then it goes back to the combat and you have to then physically do it yourself with a controller and move the character around and do the attacks and get into certain positions. And there are not many games like that. Like I think Dragon Age is a really good comparison, Origins. But even then it was like kind of either or. You didn't, not many, it wasn't like a every battle you bounced between the two. Whereas it, it seemed to feel like Final Fantasy VII was a lot of like 60-40 or 50-50 at times about being in combat, being in the pause mode, being in combat, being in the pause mode. Like it did feel like one had to go with the other. Like you could probably go through a battle completely without, you know, pausing and using the the, the menu to do spells or abilities, but you're almost losing something in comparison. It wouldn't be optimal. No, it wouldn't be optimal. And it depends because that's the thing, right? I guess making like the Scorpion boss, the first boss in the game, be a challenge means that players aren't just going to run up to it as Cloud and be like, square, 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 square. Ah, he's dead. I just hit him with my sword a thousand times. There really seems to be some really thoughtful, smart design to this. And I'm actually really quite impressed so far. Which might be a good point to bring up the the classic mode, quote unquote classic mode. Did so I didn't try this. I watched a video of somebody play it, and it does look the same. Yeah, I the one I think actual disappointment is that that doesn't play more for me. Is that I I was hoping for a more slower paced tactical mode where I really could micromanage every single millisecond. I don't know if I'm going to get that, but I definitely was not going to be getting that out of the classic mode, which just kind of turns your character into an AI. The idea is that you be is that you'll be pausing and giving him orders more often than not. But in practice, there's no reason not to mash that attack button while waiting for the ATB charge to build up again so that it you can pause and give the next easier order. As well, isn't it? They like do it bump does... the difficulty up to account for that too, that you don't have control over your character either. And it uh, in in terms of marketing it as a classic mode that can have turn-based style gameplay, it's not what they sell it as. Yeah. I, I am not gonna play through the game like that. I'm gonna set it to normal and, and go through it that way. And and that is fun for what it is. I wouldn't I, was... I wouldn't play through that way anyway, because if I'm honest, and I know some people won't like it, but it's worse. <laughs> it's not a good system. I, I was hoping that it would be the kind of system where as soon as the enemy spots you, the game pauses and grid lines start popping up on the ground. You, you, you envision that? Yeah, but you've got to think about what the game... Uh, I mean, yeah, you've got to think about what the game is. They had to totally redesign the levels for, for this system. I, I, I can start to sympathize with why they would want to delay it now that... um. The placement of the enemies in relation to what sort of clutter around the environment is something that the level designers have to pay so much extra attention to because that scorpion boss is not like that scorpion boss needs a place to retreat to so players can have some distance to shoot at it and yeah. 
that that requires some redesigns. The script also seems a hell of a lot more expansive than in the original version. I remember this this whole sequence being a, a 30, 45 minute wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, you're done sort of thing. Here it's a 90 minute uh, tutorial where it took you, you 90 can, minutes about the first wow. run through. Well, I was also stopping and going to make my gifts on the way. I mean, how long do you think it took you? If it took anyone under an hour, I'd be, I'd be, I'd worry they'd miss something. It took under an hour. It took me, it took me 43 minutes. I had already done the boss, but the, uh, the starting part where from the, from getting off the train. Oh yeah. You played it before. Well, no. So the, the, the TGS demo was just the boss fight. Like I didn't play from the train to the boss and then from the boss running the timer to the end that, that that probably did help you go faster than what i was oh, doing yeah, i was yeah, probably yeah. thinking thinking longer about the tutorial messages and yeah and... no doubt i think so i mean 90 and 40 are quite different anyways anywho's point is you're gonna is, buy it uh not on launch but definitely eventually mm. i i got some other things that that i'm gonna want to Want to be playing through over the next uh, couple months, one of which will be Half-Life Alex, which I will get on launch. I am hoping to rent a Oculus Quest from the office specifically just so I can play Half-Life Alex. I wonder if the FF7 remake would make a good rental, depending on how long it is. Well, that's the thing I'm interested in. I think that's the, the only problem Mm-mm. is that we still just do not know... How long is this game? I I also want to say that my second actually disappointing thing that that, that I, I wish they would change is on the title card it says remake. The camera does this gorgeous pan through of Midgar looking beautiful, and then the logo shows up and you see Final Fantasy VII. You're like, yeah, it's the '90s again, and then the word remake shows up and it just it oh it took me right out of it. If only, if only they just airbrushed out that word remake, I would, mwah, perfect, 10 out of 10. That would be a massive surprise. <laughs> they just come out and like, hey, here's the whole game. Anyway, we were just joking. <laughs> what? It just, I, I, it just seems a little, um, timid to, to pour so much, um, effort into fully immersing yourself into a remake of what you were picturing in your head when you were a child and then yeah. the title card of the logo of the game says final fantasy 7 remake yeah but at least it doesn't say final fantasy 7 remake episode one <laughs> it's the most like nitpicky frustrating bullshit thing in the world i will gladly admit to being a a, a, a hyper demanding pissant for that one but if that title card just said Final Fantasy VII instead of Final Fantasy VII Remake, I when, would not be having this conversation right now. Does Resident Evil... No, we, I think even Resident Evil 2, that ha, that says Remake. Because it says R-E-Make. Like, Resident Evil Make. Right? I wonder how the decision gets made on that. Like, it, what what is the conversation like when they're all sitting around the table and they're like, okay, do we want our, our logo, our official title to be Remake or just the original title? Like what are the, what are the pros and cons that the the team works through for a decision like that? I think it's mostly pros, right? So the menu game definitely is just Resident Evil Two, not Resident Evil Two ah, Remake. Okay, okay. But I'm still so, looking for it to show up in the the introductory cutscenes. 
Maybe maybe they had the bulls. They were just like, this is Resident Evil 2. Don't even bother playing the old one. In fact, we've delisted it from every platform in existence. Now you only have this. If I'm looking at these hyper shiny, slimy, 8th gen graphics, I know it's the remake. You don't gotta tell me it. <laughs> Any case, that's all, that's all my list of, of bullet points that I put down. So I made the conscious effort to play some games this week. In fact, I actually streamed playing a game, a new game. That's something I'm gonna, now I've got a bit more time, try and do some more of. Playing Final Fantasy VII was mostly a highlight, but there is a game that came out last week. Maybe, I don't think it got overshadowed. I think they're two different things, maybe, because, but this game is really cool. It is called Blood Roots. What is Blood Roots? Well, if you like Hotline Miami, you will like this game. I like Hotline Miami. It is like cartoony Wild West Hotline Miami. And I almost want to say it's better. I can picture a better Hotline Miami. It, it, it is such a quirky and fun little game. Oh, um, it looks good. It is so... I'm going to do that thing again that I always do. It feels so good to play. It feels so good to play. Like, you run around like you do in Hotline Miami, but the speed of which is really quick. The character moves really fast. You're like this kind of cowboy. I don't know. You're not a cowboy, but you're like some dude from the Wild West. And you've been murdered, but then you come back alive, and now you're trying to kill the people who, who killed you. It's, That'll uh, teach him. That, yeah, exactly. And you chase them down through these like Wild West gold rush prospector settings hateful it reminds me a lot of the hateful eight to be honest and you run around and every almost everything is a weapon fence posts <laughs> chicken fish kebab spikes this is really cute swords axes plates buckets Everything. You pick it up, you throw it, and the best thing they have, the smartest fucking thing, is that every weapon has, like, a like a certain amount of times you can use it. So, like, the sword will have, like, three uses, and then the bucket will have one use, and the fish will have, like, one use. So you're always running around, hitting people, and everybody dies in one hit, and so do you. And you're running around, and you're, like, combo chaining people together, because it has a combo meter that gives you more points. And you're like, you slap somebody with a fish and then it breaks and you pick up a sword and you slice your way through three people and then you quickly find another weapon and you slap somebody in the face with like a, with a rowing oar or something and you, you pole vault over a fence and then smack somebody in the face with it and then you run off and you get like another axe. It's like, it's so one-to-one, -one, just it grips you and you're like, it's almost like a dance. It's so cool. I, I just watched some gameplay footage where he ran over three bad guys with a cart of hay. He did do that, yes. <laughs> and you do that quite frequently. It's great. And it's funny because you can you can jump on that crate uh, on that cart of hay, run into three people, get off it, pick up the wheels, and then throw the wheels at the people running towards you. It's so good. It's it's a very good game. I love games that have you switching weapons back and forth throughout a fight as, yeah, as and it's, 
part of, of the foundational mechanics. And it's not, like, bad either. It's like, yeah, people might be thinking, like, weapon durability. It's nothing like that. It's just that every weapon has a certain amount of uses, and it literally has them in big, bold illustrations on the screen, like, almost like bullets. Imagine a weapon like a bullet, right? You have three bullets, one bullet, two bullet. Each, each time you use it, you're using a bullet. And then when you run out of bullets, you swap to a different weapon. But it keeps the combat going all the time and you're moving so quickly and you're having a great time. It's not without frustrations. There are, it is a little, going back to janky, it is a little janky at times. The collision detection. Because jank and, is good. But this is bad jank. This is unpolished collision boxes. But if there's that... no jank at all, it'll just feel soulless. No, I think there's a lot of charm in this anyway that you don't need the jank. There's a lot about the gameplay itself that is just quirky and hilarious that you wouldn't need to do jank. Jank is to cover your own ass for lacking personality and a soul in a game. It's why, you know, people absolutely love Deadly Premonition because it has both jank and personality. But this, this definitely can just get along without being janky in the way that it is because it can be frustrating which is you die sometimes and you're like what the fuck why did i die that that was bullshit and that cannot feel so great but it's it's fairly forgiving as soon as you die you restart and you jump back in same as hotline miami you get new power-ups based around hats similar to hotline miami nice and it's it's a it's a bloody good time it's a good game, and it's like I think it's half price on the Epic Store now, for like maybe fifteen dollars, I think. And I would recommend it. It's one of the better games I played this year, considering how the dry spell we've been in, and now we're about to head into the the Doom, Animal Crossing, Half Life, Alex, Final Fantasy VII bonanza. It was a lovely game to play, in 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 between everything that's happening. I think I think you'd really like it, George. I I think I would too. I I, I genuinely enjoyed both Hotline Miami's. I'm one of the weirdos who liked Hotline Miami too, perfectly fine. And yeah. I I love any game that allows you and well wants you to rapidly switch weapons in the middle of a fight. Then you will love this. And the controls are just literally B and A. So you pick up a weapon, you fire it, and that's it. <laughs> it's amazing. Speaking of games that are good, wholesome, quality, clean, fun times that just make you smile. Speaking of remakes and remasters and blasts from the past. Oh no. A new version of Halo Combat Evolved has come out on PC. It's the third version. Okay. I don't know how many versions of Halo there are out there in general. I want to say like at least five or six between all across. This is maybe the third time I've, I've played through the game on a third different platform after a childhood of, of playing the bejesus out of the Gearbox 03 port. This new port that, um, 343 put out as part of the PC Master Chief collection has, um, a lot of, quality to it that I didn't even notice was missing from the Gearbox port from way back in the day. I didn't know that there were specular shaders all over the levels in Halo that cause little texture details to scroll past your camera that makes you feel like you're moving faster than you really are because Master Chief is a really, really slow first-person shooter character and I just kind of dealt with that as a kid. But now I realize that all these Xbox kids had um a little more texture work in their game to, to alleviate something that looked weird to me as a kid. Uh, the... 
multiplayer matchmaking system has you actually rotating through the usual match maps that the game actually shipped with. Uh, I, I, I do miss server browsers, but it is so nice not having to play 24-7 Blood Gulch or have 40 players crammed into Battle Creek, because that's all you would see in the Gearbox PC port back in the day in Halo. Also, the extra extra particle effects, like more sparks will fly out of, of the air when, when you're shooting the assault rifle around. Uh, also, those maps were never really played or designed for, for large multiplayer environments in the first place. That's something that the Xbox kids nor the Gearbox kids ever really got to see out of this game. And plugging a lot of, of the weird surreal quirks that Halo 1 had into a matchmakeable online multiplayer environment like this makes for some really good times, like the indestructible vehicles. That's something that I didn't realize. Once you plug that in, like you you realize how much is missing from, from the later games in terms of comedic shenanigans. Like Halo, Halo CE is not built for multiplayer. It's not balanced for multiplayer, but I absolutely loved a moment I had where a, an enemy tank blasted my warthog up onto a cliff that, that allowed me to make a safe getaway because I survived the crash because the warthog was indestructible. The warthog <laughs> is also so much more responsive and, and fast and smooth and fun to drive in this Halo compared to the others. And this time the PC port actually has netcode that can that can manage a map full of warthogs doing crazy silly jumps all all together. It is it is such a hilarious good time with 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 this Halo in particular. Like one of the things that's also gone are um havoc era physics where where you see ragdolls and physics objects. Um, calculator on yeah in halo ce animations just kind of teleport from one pose to another so a lot of speaking of of like a little bit of jank being a nice little spicy thing to throw in a dish like seeing an explosion cause a, a, a corpse of master chief to start swimming through the air instead of ragdolling through the air to then immediately teleport into a stationary pose when it hits the ground while a warthog smoothly with fully animated calculated physics actually rolls and tumbles down a hill it's it's funny to watch in a way that has since been lost and it's also part of the xbox game pass so just just Travel back in time two months ago when they were selling that thing for one dollar a month. Sign up for that, and you you're you, you're good. Somehow you continue to play old games that have technically been released this week, so on news. So yep, yep. This is a news. This is a small talk section of the podcast that has two different games that are actually from more than a decade ago that and are being. Remakes. That are being re-released in in different states to to What's different budgets. What's even more amazing is that is it this version of Halo Combat Evolved or, that is almost ten years old as well? The remake of this, the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty version, is it the same version? Halo Anniversary. Oh yeah, which might same? it might is actually have been a two thousand eleven release. Yeah, so we got one more year until that's technically a decade old. Holy fuck! So. Wow, we're already 10 years from one remake. Oh, it's terrifying. And at the end of the month, the uh, <laughs> 17 years in the making, 
wait, no, it would be uh, more like 14 years in the making Half-Life sequels coming out, so... <laughs> so we're getting pandered to. Our generation is getting pandered to hard this week. Well, it's because our generation are the ones making the games. <laughs> and we don't want new things. We just want to be overwashed with nostalgia and talk about it on podcasts for 10 years. So yeah, what's going to happen in five to eight years? Who knows? Remakes of The Witcher 3 that we're nostalgic for. Remakes of Bloodborne. Remakes of Mario Kart <laughs> again for <laughs> the Switch. Trying to imagine a remake for Bloodborne already makes me sad. Let's move on. Why? 4K Bloodborne? Well, that would be more of a content? remaster, not a remake. Yeah, not even a remaster, just an up, just just make that just let just, that just game a PC be, port. Um, let the game be more available on other platforms. Yeah, just just put Bloodborne on PC so we can install Macho Man Randy Savage mods. Bring it to Switch, you cowards. Replace the the howling beast with gritty. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's, that's actually a really good idea. <laughs> yes. Uh. Citizens of the world, we are in deep doo doo. Aliens. There's a lot of them, and they're meanies. As peace-loving humans, we must take up arms, and by arms I mean guns. United, we will form a giant can opener, and we will open. A giant can of whoop-ass. Halo Combat Evolved. So, so far, we haven't made any real dire short-term predictions. I mean, as cool as it would be to see this VR remake of Jurassic Park Trespasser, that seems like a longer-term window than anything going terribly wrong over the next course of week after this, this news we're going to talk about. Last week... We talked about how Facebook and Kojima Productions and EA were not going to GDC this year. And then the day before I was actually able to edit the podcast and put it out, GDC got officially delayed. And it's indefinite. We don't know if it'll, it'll be permanent. This week, uh, Castlevania Season 3 is coming out soon. Uh, yeah. Baldur's, Gate, Baldur's Gate 3 had a round of positive previews. Just to stop there for a second... Man, does that game look good. Please continue. Case in point, we can confirm Netflix Switcher is being renewed for season two. Uh, yay, apparently Vesmer is going to be showing up, played by someone named Kim Bodnia. But for some longer talks, we can start with the coronavirus again. Yay! The It is kind of weird to... I don't think I've ever been in a situation. Obviously, we've had SARS and MERS and other issues, but I don't. And we've had obviously terrorism attacks and stuff globally and wars and stuff. But I generally can't remember or think of a time when I've lived through a time when every single person on the planet is suffering from the ripple effects of the same thing. Have you ever seen the sales of a game, though, spike or decline because of a plague? Well, I wonder if it's about a game based on plagues. <laughs> plague Inc., which, as I remember, actually has like fairly positive views and, uh, and, 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 and love behind it, uh, has simultaneously been removed from the China App Store while it's also climbing to the top of the App Store in other regions. On February 27th, they got notice that uh, apparently their game includes some kind of illegal content in China all of a sudden as of nowadays yeah, yeah, instead yeah. of earlier uh, yeah. and has been removed from the Chinese App Store. 
Uh, according to the devs, quote, it is not clear to us if this removal is linked to the ongoing coronavirus outbreak that China is facing. We have a huge amount of respect for our Chinese players and are devastated that they are no longer able to access and play Plague Inc. Oh, hello. Is Kojima calling you? Is this what's happened twice in this podcast? Kojima <laughs> is calling you, isn't he? It was a reminder to go to therapy. Um, quote, it's... <laughs> It's not clear to us if this removal is linked to the ongoing coronavirus that outbreak is outbreak that China is facing. However, Plague Inc.'s educational importance has been repeatedly recognized by organizations like the CDC. They do try to reiterate that that the the game here, which is about making a virus that goes on to infect the world, is is based on some kind of of educational intention with 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 research and, and consultation involved to to not make it some kind of horrible exploitation thing, which I probably imagine checks out because if it hadn't, we would have heard more more news about this game in the meantime. Have you ever played Plague Inc? No, I've only played Pandemic, the board game. <laughs> sort of similar principles. I'm trying to remember if this is um that old Flash game that, it is. that I was yeah, playing. Yeah, yeah, okay. With Madagascar? I think so, yeah. Was and that? had like a really popular iOS. Yep, yep, version. okay. Yeah. So yeah, it was a long ass time ago, but I have played Plague Inc. And, and yeah, I think they did like <laughs> actually read through the news and consult some experts in terms of determining that Madagascar has the most uh, stringent quarantine procedures when, when it comes to, to, to plagues. But yeah, Plague Inc., Anyways, uh, next topic is also about the coronavirus, and that is more or less following up on last week's um, uh, speculation and predictions that GDC would would get canceled because everyone's dropped out. This week, we're going to talk about how GDC actually did get canceled and everyone did drop out. (laughs) I say canceled, but the real term is indefinitely delayed and rescheduled for some vague time during summer, while the GDC and IGF awards are now going to be streamed on Twitch as videos instead of live award shows on a stage full of full of people in an audience i really i'm very very curious as to what that looked like behind the scenes and how a plan like that got put into action well i imagine you don't really you don't prepare for these things right is this is this something you make a plan for when, when well you the thing is you don't expect that a global virus will wipe everybody's travel plans out and then you have to do something the thing is as somebody who has been a judge and jury for this year's IGF, it is quite sad because not only us, who worked really hard to go through all of the games that were submitted and all that kind of thing, it it literally takes months of work. Months of work. And then you obviously have the IGF uh, award show, like the, the, the ceremony and all that kind of thing. The problem is, is that these indie devs who are up for these awards sometimes literally rely on either the funding from winning and being nominated or they need the kind of quote box pull quote IGF nominated or IGF award winning blah 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 so they can market their game and it comes now and they might be preparing for a release in the summer so they I, I feel bad that they can't physically, you know, go and collect an award or go and be and meet the peers and their other nominated colleagues and that kind of thing. It's, But I think it's the best 
case instead of delaying the IGF awards until when if GDC happens in the summer because I don't know if any event is going to be happening for yeah. at least six months. Yeah, this whole summer is is real vague. Well, we have Bit Summit in May here in Kyoto, and we're panicking. We're panicking, thinking we're not going to be able to do this. It's not going to work. Like, nobody's going to come, and we're going to lose a whole bunch of money. But, you know, we don't know. So you keep on going. And the best thing, I think, for the IGF, and I think the smartest thing they've done, fair play to Kelly and her team, is to do a stream. Like, be, like... They do it for the Dice Awards. They do it for the, uh, you know, other award shows around the world. Uh, yes, nobody will be there, but at least the winners will get the thing they, they go there for, which is either to win or, or to get funding or to get... You think about, like, the, the some of the most famous developers in the world. Derek Yu, Spelunky, won a GDC award, uh, won an IGF award, got funding, made Spelunky. Uh, Edmund McMillan, Gish, won the award, got funding, made, you know, Super Meat Boy. Like, these awards really do make a difference to some people, especially indie developers who, who are, like, coming up and coming. Like, you know, A Short Hike is one of the ones that was nominated. That's one of my favorite games of last year. And it's like, what could happen to that team if they got funding and they were recognized and that, that kind of thing? It's... You know, it, it's quite important, I think, that it happens. But it is a fucking bummer that this has happened. If you've ever heard about how the economic effects of the coronavirus might turn out to be scarier than the actual symptoms and, and healthcare consequences of the coronavirus, this is our example for our world right here. And not even that, James Bond getting delayed by seven <laughs> months... Is that should tell you how big of a deal the coronavirus in terms of an economic impact it's having. Like like this means that a lot of indie developers are suddenly having to reschedule their future for the entire year. A lot of, of planning and, and projects springboard off of connections made and meetings made at GDC that are just now question marks for, yep. for like a four or five month period. I know uh, we talk a lot about game dev sometimes because obviously that's what we talk about and that's my job and all that kind of jazz. But GDC is that 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 moment of the year where everybody's there not for anything other than business. And it's a lot of pitching and it's a lot of showing your game and it's a lot of trying to get funding and it's a lot of that. So imagine all of the people now who have spent a year, six months since last GDC or whatever, getting their pitch or their prototype or anything ready. And now they have no outlet for that. They can send an email to the people they were potentially going to do it, but that does not have anywhere near the same weight or effect as meeting someone person to person, showing them the game, giving them a good experience, giving them a good time. Most, most about video game development is personality as well, right? And relationships. And going to these events, like it might be, you might laugh and think, why do you see people like Rami Ismaili or uh, like uh, the Shovel Knight team? Why are those guys always at events? And it's like, because building relationships is how you get to make games. And it's how you continually are able to afford to be <laughs> in the cycle, the very tenuous loop that is video game development. So having the biggest event of the year, the one that is only about business because E3 now, public visitors, 
PAX, of course, is the best event, in my opinion, but is mostly fan-driven. There is not as much business as you think compared to GDC, which is literally pure business. And a lot of people will have been banking on this for a long time, and it's going to hurt a lot of indies who had stuff planned for this. And I feel bad for them. I mean, myself included, to be honest. The the fruit of much of that that business and networking talk is the educational aspect of GDC. Like every single year we hear pages upon pages of game development tricks that, that people come up with. It was so exciting being there in 2013 and 14 when they were um, developing best practice presentations for, for VR stuff. And, and now the Death Stranding talk is just up in the air, question marks. Their PR people say that they are going to intend to make many of the presentations that would have been given at GDC 2020 available for free online on yes. um, their YouTube channel and the GDC vault. Also, uh, if anybody is interested or you were planning on going to GDC, there is a uh, kind of an event. I don't know how you'd call it, a community called Not GDC. And they have like a Discord channel and basically they have a, a web link that collates everything like talks, uh, design breakdowns, Gama Sutra articles. Like they, it breaks down everything in there that is all of the learning resources and stuff that you would get from GDC into a thing. And they're trying to plan around having like a VR version of GDC where people give talks through VR, which is being organized by uh, Oren uh, from... Uh, what are they called? Puppy Works or whatever they're called. But they're doing a great job trying to respond to this. And obviously there's been like a lot of funding responses, like people raising money for devs who have uh, out of pocket. Oh yeah, via, can't get their refunds. Who can't get their refunds or the cancellations on plane tickets or hotels. So there has been what I love about video games now, which is the people it's been an amazing outcry of support for those guys, and it, that's really cool to see. Yeah, it's with the event itself canceled. The any prediction you can make on the how the quantity and quality of that's going to turn out is is just you just got to shrug at it for right now. Like, you just don't know. Cross like, your fingers just, and hope for the best. We just don't know. It's it sucks. It's going to be so weird in the future looking at archival footage of the GDC and IGF award shows and seeing one year where where it's going straight online instead of on a stage in front of people. Yeah. I I wonder how much of a learning experience this whole coronavirus episode will be for for the world when it's all all over and done with. Uh nothing is safe. Everything can possibly <laughs> fail. <laughs> Tax the rich, use it to pay for healthcare. Yeah, good job, America. So, if you've got listener questions <laughs> that you'd like to hear us try and, and stammer our way into answering on air, send them to dadandsonspodcast at gmail.com and we will we will address them every single week of 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 the next few years or however long. Until the coronavirus kills us and inevitably cancels the dead and sunshine. That would that would be the greatest tragedy. I can think of cooler ways to go. Like getting a cease and desist by Randy Pitchford. Oh <laughs> for for making a way lamer port of Halo than 343, by the way. Hey man, if there is any positive you can you can take, George, it's that Randy Pitchford has as much chance as you to get the coronavirus. Ah, uh, yes, yes. You know, I'm I'm remembering some some lessons from history class about how like scary don't wish viruses upon people. 
During the Middle Ages, when the Black Plague was happening, it was some profound, scary, spiritual lesson that all the rich, important people were just as vulnerable to it as the poor people. But I wonder if nowadays... The coronavirus is our 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 balancer. <laughs> it is Genova. No, no, the opposite. Because nowadays the rich people can get their groceries delivered and and have they, they never have to leave the house. But Donald Trump is not going to do that, is he? If Donald Trump has to go to like a school and he gets coronavirus and he's like seventy eight years old or whatever he is. Dude's gonna die. Yeah, well, Donald Trump is also a millionaire heavily indebted to international powers. Actual billionaires whose names we don't know are probably living in their house by themselves and never leaving it. That's fine. They can stay there. Yeah, but it used to be that the plagues would be a great equalizer, reminding everyone that we're actually (laughs) the same meat water creatures. I think coronavirus is proving no no matter how much money you have, you're kind of still fucked, to be honest. Uh, That might depend on who actually dies and what their income looks like i feel and in america you definitely would see those those numbers skew skew heavily to the poor i i don't doubt it uh first questions from alex m hey dad and sons in your opinion do you feel widespread unionization within the games industry is enough to change the tide regarding cultures and practices or do you think a fundamentally different structural model is required to facilitate creative primacy if so what does that look like who knows? I honestly don't know. Um, I'm trying to think up of uh, extended definitions for the implications here. With regards to culture and practices, I do believe that unionization would fix crunch time and sexual harassment issues. In regards to creative primacy, though, I'm wondering if, 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 if you're getting into a little more of a libertarian definition on whether or not that would um, still encourage projects that are creative and innovative to get pushed out the block, in which case I would argue that under the current system, that doesn't seem to be the case at the bigger companies that theoretically should have more money to risk. And that the uh, solution to that is to figure out ways to incentivize the market into being competitive with different a lot of different types of companies showing up in addition to to the big companies. And as we have argued, whether or not the indie mid-tier companies, um, I, I'd also like to see more co-ops. I'd like to see more people like Toby Turner, who work by themselves off of crowdfunding. I would like to see more models like the Nordic Game Fund. And also maybe someday, centuries in the future, my grandchildren could see a, a video game industry where a lot of studios are funded from universal basic income. I think unionization is just one small step to many, many, many vibrant future future options for uh, for protecting and preserving the the creative labor that that creates creative media products we all enjoy. It will take time, even if it's a thing that would go ahead in the future. Uh, the games industry, unlike a lot of industries, is a global thing. Like we're not just talking about unionizing in America. Right. We're talking about like studios that have offices in four different countries. So if you unionize one studio and then half of the time that studio is not there when the other studio are there, that will affect your pipeline and your business massively. So it's like a lot of studios are going to be hesitant, not only because obviously they want to get the most out of employees because that's the horrible way the games industry is, but also the balance of hey, we have a studio in America and we have a studio in China and they don't overlap time-wise because now everybody clocks off at like five. So it's like, we have to close one studio down. And like, that might sound drastic, but I've seen that happen. Like, all the inability for studios to work together, the the bottom 
of the food chain just gets cut. And it's kind of a balance where people have to learn about new ways for development pipelines to work and all that kind of thing. I think unionization would be great, but it's never going to happen in a place like Japan. Like, it's just not. So how does, like, the industry keep up with then Japan where everybody's working around the clock and, like, they're making all these great games because they're working double the time. And it's like, I don't know. There is, like, so many factors. Into and, it. and obviously... Up until sales start to go down and they notice that people would rather play mobile games than their really great games. And, and that might start to incentivize a little bit of a restructure. I feel like that but happened. Who, who, yeah, but you're talking, yeah, but you're talking about mobile games. But who are the absolute biggest producers of mobile games? Japan, Korea, and China. Three of the most disgusting work ethics in the world. And they're, they're all the top-selling mobile games. Right, but I was kind of referring to how like Japanese console games suffered a, a decline that required a little bit of a creative... That was more of a own hubris, own yeah. That was more of a own hubris thing. I think I I I see what you're saying, and obviously I've talked a lot about crunch, but it's different. It's not as easy. I as think it had just... to do with the hardware at the time. The switch in the PS4 shook that, shook that up, and and kicked Japanese console gaming back into gear. Oh yeah, because nobody could develop for the PS3. That's a given. But that's hubris. Pot- yeah, exactly. That's that's hubris. It's complete hubris. Like there was a lot of like, well, we just dominated with the PlayStation Two, and every Japanese developer was making shit tons of games to the PS Two, and making loads of money compared to the West. And then they were like, well, we'll just do the same with the PS Three. Oh, 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 oh no, oh no. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I think I honestly don't know. The answer is the question. I hope. So, but that's different to knowledge. I think that technology trends to places that decentralize creative power away from large institutions the longer and longer the centuries wear on. And that people like Toby Fox are, are, are evidence of something that I do think we will see more of in the future. Um, I hope so, but... Even then, Toby Fox, for as big as Undertale is and stuff, is still just a tiny drop in the ocean of what the games industry is now. This global behemoth that involves so many different facets like mobile gaming from China to PS5 console games in America. I don't know. Do you know what tools uh, Undertale was made in? Yeah, Game Maker. Game Maker. So maybe Game Maker is um the the <laughs> the the choke point of this, the bottleneck. It's uh how how easy the tools are to make um games with with increasingly smaller and increasingly more independently funded developers. I would not take Toby Fox as the example of this because Toby Fox is an extra special human being that literally does not exist outside of being Toby Fox. He's so talented and. I have kind of seen what Undertale runs like on Game Maker from a dev point, and it is not pretty. It is a hacked together, barely taped thing. It, but it works, and it sold millions. So, you know, hey-ho, special, accidental, good time, right place, good game. The formulas just don't add up. <laughs> All the algorithms you can think of any business decision you can make, the video game throws you a game like Undertale or like Stardew Valley, and you're just like, what the fuck just happened? Why is this game selling so well? Do you remember when 
Cart Life was winning all the IGF awards, and this was made yeah. by like one guy, an adventure game maker in 2010. Yeah. It's mad. Like one of the IGF games this year was a Twine game. It's like you can do anything. It's it's about the content you produce. It's not the hardware. Nothing is about technology. The AAA blockbuster space is about technology because what else are you doing outside of trying to beat your competitors to the best tech, the best looking games, the best experiences like a movie? Indie games don't, and they're never going to compete in that space. So what do you do? Well, you just put your own personality into it and hack together a game like Undertale. You're not going to be the best programmer in the world because the fact is you're wearing multiple hats. So you're halving your design because you're having to do programming and you can only design as well as you can program, which means a lot of the time your ideas get stunted by your inability to program or do art and all that. It's like Slay the Spire. I love Slay the Spire so much and it's amazing, yet the art is garbage. And it's like, that's hilarious to me because I didn't play Slay the Spire for like six months because I thought the art was bad. But you wouldn't get that with a blockbuster team because they have specialists for this. So I think there's a lot of like unanswered formulas and algorithms. It's not just one dude in a bedroom or one person can make a game. Anybody can make a game, of course, but can you make a game and then pitch it and then get it to the right publisher or the right area to do it at the right time? I don't know. Andres V asks... Hello, Dad and Sons. I recently watched a video on YouTube about video game preservation via emulation. According to the video, the laws about emulation are very wishy-washy and often contradict each other, and people are divided, with one side saying that emulation should be illegal because people would basically just pirate games, and the other side saying that not all people do this, and they do it for historical purposes, game creation purposes, and to preserve the games in general. So, Dad and Sons, I would like to know your opinion on emulation in general, please. You should go first, George. Cause... Hey, I thought about this one walking home in the rain yesterday. <laughs> I am a product of emulation and piracy. The career you have witnessed develop on YouTube. I would not know what the hell I'm talking about if I did not spend the years of my life from ages like 11 to 17 just just playing shadily acquired ROMs on emulators and then hacking them and then modding them and then making some of my own stuff and then coming into a career where I was able to leverage that knowledge into something that made the world a lot of money. I think that is why my opinion of it is Keep it available for the kids to some extent. Okay, I know why it is against copyright law. I know why a lot of people in the industry will encourage kids not to do this. But at the same time, I also am totally okay with that. So long as the consequences and accessibility for kids to do this are okay. See, that's the, my opinion is like, I'm in it for the kids. Once I became an adult, and if you are an adult, like it became so much easier to, to buy games legally and I never really thought about it again. But I do not want to go back and deprive my childhood self of that experience. Like it was, it was very important. It was almost an educational experience. Having a whole entire library, the entire library of examples to follow for the thing you want to be when you grow up and, and getting tools that you should be expecting to use your whole life when you grow up, that is an incredibly helpful resource for a kid who doesn't actually have control over how their parents' money is spent. It's... It's like bringing a bigger, better school library into the kids' home for free. And that's 
That's some kind of optimistic leftist space communism utopian future version of education, but that was the reality that me and many children of our generation grew up with. And considering the kind of job market I entered into and how much knowledge and experience I had with it going in ahead of time, I absolutely do believe that the, the, this, this childhood I had full of emulation and piracy every summer did objectively, financially make my life and many others better. I don't really know what to think. I feel like it's a double-edged sword in the fact that I have used emulators a lot and it is great to have games preserved. I think that is the part that I care most about, preservation and history. But at the same time, if companies are now re-releasing on things like the Switch, for example, like the Mega Man collection and stuff, they're actively still seeking a profit off stuff they've made, and that's theirs. You don't, you can't just Google a book from 30 years ago and have it readily available to you unless you pirate it, right? And even then, it's still tough. There is there there just seems to be a, a weird thing about video games where. There is almost like an ownership that's different to everything else. Like, get, like it is the gamer thing, right? It's like we own the games. It's ours. It's it's in our blood. It's our culture. It's it's we. It's it is almost like a cultural thing, right? It's like every Super Famicom game ever released, I, like I own because my nostalgia is so strong for this, and this is my passion. And I think that's a lot of where emulation comes from, and and that's why people think, well, everybody should be able to emulate games. But at the same time, people aren't arguing like, well, you should be able to read every book for free that is over 20 years old. It's probably really pretty easy to actually Google up torrents for PDFs of books you want to read from 30 years ago. No, absolutely. Absolutely. There is a difference, I think, between... I, I said piracy. I said you can pirate them. But there are literally emulator programs that you can download legally and then you get the ROMs from separately. Whereas you would have to go through torrent sites to get books. Like what I'm saying is that with video games, it's almost more socially acceptable and readily available compared to other things. Maybe, no, because even with TVs and movies, you still need to pirate them. You still need to go to torrent sites. But emulators are so readily available. It is almost like the world's just accepted that it's an okay thing. It's like weed. It'll eventually be legalized. And, and that actually brings up Another point, which is that if the laws and the rules are there to encourage you not to do that, to keep the money flowing through the economy anyways, as we have seen, I think part of, of what's formulated my opinion is that I grew up doing this while still watching the movie and game industry break records and, and outsell their previous generations anyway, despite how much popular piracy was becoming within my generation that um, it seems almost appropriate in a weird way that we have these laws and these rules that are more like the implications of laws and rules because it, 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 they're there to keep the money flowing even though if you really want to, you have access to it and the people who are really going to want to pirate stuff are probably going to be kids anyway. Which brings up another point that I have, which is the conversation over whether or not on an idealistic level, there should be ownership over art. That's why I'm coming to this from the argument of think of the children. Like if you're a child who doesn't have your own money anyway, who has no power over how your parents spend their money and also doesn't have a lot of power in terms of how much exposure you get to the outside world, I still want 
these these giant libraries of free stuff to be around floating on the internet for the kids for if if not for anyone else then then please please for the kids i agree like i think there should be rom versions of every game ever made so that we can catalog and have preservation of video games for the long run anyway and i i've used emulators the whole time i don't have a problem with them personally if somebody wanted to pirate a game i made or whatever i'd be honored that they're playing my game i just think sometimes you have to think about two ways you have to think about like why are these companies so protective of what or the creators like i saw something the other day from a dev on twitter like hey they just released a game and the tweet i'm paraphrasing of course was something along the lines of we've seen that 50,000 people have pirated our game and we've sold 10,000 copies and they were like hey if you enjoyed the game don't have to buy it but fancy you know maybe supporting us if you enjoyed it through paypal but they lost obviously it doesn't equate the same it's not 50,000 sales lost because that's it's probably more like 5,000 sales lost yeah but it's still the case that 50,000 people are playing a brand new game for free and they've lost out. I don't want there to be like a rule that you must be under 18 before you can log onto this torrent site. It's more like I think the status quo that we have right now is not that bad because it's so easy to get away with. I don't think so. And I think companies like Capcom and Nintendo and Sony that literally treat it like you're fucking killing your firstborn is terrible and we shouldn't do that we should be actively especially nintendo we need to be actively encouraging them to fucking document and like create wonderfully amazing historical preservations of their old games and the games that get lost and encouraging kids to have the tools online to where they can actually make grown-up projects for themselves to where they can expose themselves to the grown-up world and educate themselves and um yeah and and that that builds careers that creates money and then creates a system where when they become adults it's easier to buy stuff rather than pirate it that's what happened to me and it seemed like that's a that's a pretty cool system i there could be improved but but still working to some some extent there has to be division between emulating for the sake of education and availability to people who are maybe underprivileged and cannot access these things but want to take interest and also preservation and then what is just active piracy and i pirate all the time like i do and i don't care but it is a case of like if we're talking about emulators and we don't want them to get in trouble and we want them to be a readily available thing and I especially want them for game preservation, we have to separate them away from piracy. And we have to not talk about them in the same frame. Oh, especially because... when the developers themselves will sell you a, a emulated re-release yeah. of a game. Like, they, they, they will use the same tools as the pirates in a lot of famous yeah. cases. Yeah, they will sometimes, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, everybody's... Oh, like, oh, like most of the topics we've talked about today, everybody's fucking up and something's... There are wires that don't get connected and things are just going wrong on so all yeah. fronts. Yeah, my opinion is let's have the, the piracy and the emulators exist for the kids, but also have the implications of rules and laws to keep the economy flowing for the adults. <laughs> Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. Like this podcast, for example, has has a weird cross-funding, cross-ad-supported 
funding model of of like a small team of people getting getting money from new sources that weren't there before. So I hope that there are more things different about the way we fund creative projects 15 years in the future than are the same with the way things have been going over the course of my own career making stuff like this podcast. I think it's great I, the way we fund things now compared to 10 years ago when there was a lot of walls people had to get over. Now wonderful people are making amazing things they couldn't do before because they had the access to doing it like Patreon. The sponsors of this episode is... <laughs> Woefully absent. <laughs>